Hey there, it's Antonio, and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen? And on this week's podcast, I don't have a guest. I have not managed to round up anybody who was going to speak with me this week. Um, You know, that's on me. I don't know if you consider it a moral failing that I can't find a guest or if it's just a matter that it's difficult finding people who actually on a regular, consistent, once a week basis, finding new people, new interesting people that you want to talk to that are going to come out of nowhere and, uh, you know, bring the content onto your podcast. And I think it's important. I haven't done a solo one of these since my little episode zero trailer. Because when you're just talking by yourself, it's it's dangerous territory. You're just one ingredient. You're one note. Uh, having somebody else there brings a dynamic, brings something interesting. I mean, you know, think about cooking. I like cheese. If you just have a brick of cheddar, it's not necessarily a great lunch in and of itself. You might want some bread, piece of meat, some vegetables. I don't know. You want something different to try and kind of balance it out. And that's why I think having those guests, even though I'm exploring this kind of process and these new ideas, I don't necessarily want it to be a monologue. I don't find that to be a useful exercise for my podcast. If it works for other people, great. I listen to Bill Burr. It's fun when he does it. I don't think it's fun when I'm doing it. I say, well, doing it all by myself. But you know what? I didn't find a guest for this week. I wrote to some people. Um, Part of the production cycle is kind of meshing up people's schedules. And I think now we've been in COVID times for almost a year. People are busying themselves up again. Back in April and May, I think a lot of people were desperate to kind of fill these voids in their life that uh, they otherwise wouldn't have had. You know, in the before times, they were going to bars and they were playing racquetball and doing whatever it is that people do when there's not a deadly virus wafting around in the air. But it ends up being a lot of pressure if I insist on having a new podcast every week, which I do. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't want to simply put somebody on as a place filler. I want to either find someone that I know, find someone I don't know, that I find genuinely Having a conversation with them is going to contribute something of benefit to me and hopefully by extension to some of you. You know, I think a, a traditional sort of one-on-one podcast, you're, you're desperate to sort of book guests and you want to book quote-unquote hot guests. You want someone that is going to create buzz around your podcast, get more clicks, get more likes, get more listeners. This isn't the kind of podcast where I'm just going to get boatloads of listeners, you know? I'm, I'm here with a couple hundred bucks of recording equipment in this little cubbyhole room in my basement next to a heater. This isn't where million-dollar Spotify deals begin. Um, so really what I want to do out of all of this is just create something that is of benefit to me and is honest, you know, is really just honestly what I think and what I find interesting and not trying to impress anything upon any of you. So with that in mind, I don't have a guest for this week. Uh, I have a few people that I've been talking to for a few weeks, a few very interesting people, and I think I'm going to have a guest for next week, but I might not. 
And if not, we'll see. I don't necessarily want to make a habit of doing these monologue episodes. But hey, maybe that's what it'll come to. If you want to be a guest on my podcast, I mean, reach out to me. If nothing materializes, it's nothing personal. It's, you know, it's that old dating adage that, well, maybe it wasn't just the right fit. Maybe it wasn't meant to be. I don't necessarily want people to come on just to hawk products or... uh, you know plug something that they're working on it's not uh, it's not a late night talk show like that but you know i want to see what other people are doing and i want to see stuff where i'm like okay you know what that's a little off the beaten path i like people that are weird and i don't mean that in any sort of a pejorative way i like very unconventional thinkers and i've talked to a bunch of people that i think are quite unconventional i've gotten a few where they expressed interest in coming on and then email silence and then I'm really kind of oh what happened did I scare them off did I say something are they flaky what's going on some people have told me that they're scared about coming on a podcast and I don't want to belittle how many listeners I have because I think they're a strong faithful contingent but you know I think uh, I think I have some good listeners over here and I don't think that they're going to be very harsh brutal critics of anybody who comes on so i don't think that should hold anybody back but what the hell do i know um i've got a few new projects coming up that i wanted to talk about as well uh in addition to who cares if you listen and i'd still like to continue forward with this and talk to interesting people and find people that uh that are sort of off the beaten path that want to talk to me I also am looking at doing sort of a long-form documentary-style series. Um, The working title is Audio Essays. You know, I have ideas that come up from time to time that I think are, um, I don't want to say academic or scholarly, but I like to explore new ideas and sort of branch them out and see where they go in sort of a policy-driven atmosphere. being a lawyer you always think you're the smartest person in the room when it comes to politics and law and academics and economics and business Uh, i don't what i do like to uh, read and research things and i have ideas about stuff so you know i could break down a couple of my ideas into long uh, multi-episode arcs and It might just be a way of expressing interesting ideas without necessarily writing them out. You know, I've written essays. We've all written essays in school. I don't know that I necessarily want to write an essay at this point in my life. Maybe a PhD dissertation one day. But this is is a little bit interesting because it gets me away from typing. And I can just sort of ramble incoherently like I'm doing right now. And it's maybe a little less obvious than if I'm trying to strain to get a word count in uh, in a written essay. The other project that I'm working on, I think I said project, which is a portmanteau of podcast and project. But the other project that I'm working on is a podcast with uh, Dr. James DeVille. Big fan of the show. Uh, I've known him since my undergrad days. He was my graduate supervisor. Not my thesis supervisor, but he was the head of the grad program when I did my master's in music and culture at Carleton. And we've kept in touch. We've been drinking buddies for a few years now, and now it's uh, Zoom drinking buddies because of the pandemic. But I really like James, and I think he's somebody who is a treasure trove of 
really interesting information that you're not going to find anywhere else. Obviously, in the field of musicology and sort of audio studies more more broadly, he's talked about video game music. He's got a Twitter feed called Trail Orality, where you can learn all about the the music and presentation of film trailers, which anyone who's a film buff, I think, would find that sort of thing fascinating. What we want to do is have a podcast where Tim and me regularly conversing and analyzing a piece of music from sort of a composer off the beaten path. I'm going to say I don't want to call it a B composer or, you know, outside the canon because there's all sorts of value judgments being put in there. Let's put it this way. It's not the we want to look at composers that the very casual classical music fan might not necessarily appreciate. And so we've had a couple of ideas of people that we were uh, looking through that are well-regarded, certainly good craftspeople, but not necessarily the Mozarts and the Tchaikovskys and the Beethovens and the Bachs and the Mendelssohns and sort of composers that for whatever reason, either being ahead of their time, before their time, or just in the shadow of someone else, just never really got to uh, that that tier where everybody sort of knows their name and can remember a few of their tunes that have been played ad nauseum in, in Hollywood films. So the biggest issue with playing music is copyright. And the biggest issue with copyright is that we have to find a composer that died before 1945 and find a recording of their work that was done before 1945 or otherwise I need to dig through various estates and try and get permission to use this music so it's either going to be decidedly old music or if we can get something a little bit newer it's going to require sort of permissions and uh and um getting getting people to to be on board with that but i can't see why at least in principle somebody wouldn't let us you know describe a symphony of a of a noted early 20th century composer and then have two three minute long little interludes and then do an analysis and break it down uh and maybe have a link to like a spotify or a youtube link where you can watch it and then at least in theory the composer's estate would be able to monetize that in some way and i guess i said estate i guess it's in theory we could do a living composer but i i i'm envisioning this as being sort of older you know, the old adage of musicology just being dead white guys. I mean, they don't necessarily have to be guys. They don't necessarily have to be white. I don't know who we're going to find, but I I want to kind of explore that canon. And I know that James is intimately familiar with a lot of composers that even I, as someone who considers myself a classical music buff, I don't necessarily recognize their names. I don't know any works that they've done. I can't whistle any tunes. So it'll be a fun sort of exploration project for the both of us. And I know a lot of people have been listening to classical music during pandemic times because, well, when else are you going to have time to listen to a two-hour piece of music? Usually it doesn't bode well when you're doing a 30-minute commute somewhere and you're going to listen to a symphony in chunks. And it's it's not that kind of music, right? I guess the other thing that I want to talk about before I wrap up my uh, very short monologue episode um, just some, some books that I've been reading during pandemic times that I find really interesting and that uh, I, I want to impart the good listener with. One of my clients sent me a, a chapter's gift card just before Christmas. I thought that was a really sweet gesture. Thank you to you. Uh, I'm not 
saying their name for obvious lawyerly reasons, but she's awesome. And I, I used that to buy a whole bunch of volumes of the works of Rumi. Uh, Rumi is, uh, I guess you would call him a, a, a mystic, uh, a Sufi mystic in the Islamic tradition, writing in Persian originally. The name Rumi means the Roman. He didn't actually live in Rome. He lived in uh, modern-day Istanbul, which, because it was formerly Constantinople, the head of the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire, um, to to a Turk or a Persian living in that time period, and like I think he was like the 12th century or something like that, that was effectively Rome. Actually, it's probably later than that because I think Constantinople lasted till about the 15th century. So somewhere in there, he lived in Istanbul, and that's how he got his name. But really what he's known for are this collection of poetry. I've never really read poetry. I, I had the idea to read poetry for a long time. I'm happy that I talked to Michelle Deborah about poetry. Um... It's always kind of been on my radar as a neat thing to do, but then I never get around to it. Um, maybe because I'm still trying to be clever instead of being uh, honest with myself. Um, but Rumi, Rumi's a, Rumi's an interesting one for me because I like the idea of mysticism. I like the idea of just things that maybe don't fit in a paradigm of logic and are just really weird. I mean, years ago I read Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. And everything about it is just very symbolic and very magical. Um, you know, there's not really... We're, we're not trying to poke it for plot holes. It's not an analytical type book. It's not that type of thing. It's really about sort of trying to savor the experiences of life and and analyzing... And using that word analyzing and saying it's not analytic. I'm not analyzing. That's just my, my default word. Um... You're just really experiencing life in this magical way that really kind of leaves you with a sense of awe. And I think that's kind of cool. It's interesting, though, with poetry. I mean, it has to have a flavor, a color, a feel, a timbre, a pattern. So it's translated into English. I don't read Farsi. So, you know, does it lose something? I don't know. I couldn't tell you necessarily. Um, but I just imagine that it's a real daunting task to balance between translating the meaning literally and then translating it in a way that the flavor of the original poetry isn't just lost in this very robotic translation. So I've been reading some of those. I mean, they seem to be good additions, but, uh, maybe if I really truly want to capture what, uh, what Rumi wrote, I just have to learn a different language and then just dive right in or find some English poets that I find equally mystical and interesting. On, on a different beat, uh, a book that I was reading, I've been reading it for a few years now since the last time we had an election here in Canada and it was called Against Democracy by a political scientist by the name of Jason Brennan. You know, it, the title is, is going to get the hairs up on some people's neck. I mean, it's not an advocacy of totalitarian fascism. I mean, that much I can say definitively. Um, I'm not going to put on some bullhorns and storm the Capitol Hill or anything like that, or, you know, Parliament here in Canada. It's basically the idea that our political system, our democracy as we have it now, is plagued by hooliganism. 
You know, there are people that are so much on the red team and so much on the blue team that it really mirrors sports fans. And I don't think that in of itself is necessarily a, a, a novel argument. I think people have seen it for a long time. And it's a little bit annoying that as soon as your political party of choice changes its policy on something, people find this very convenient way to shift alongside with it. And in, I mean, his book, Brennan, kind of breaks down people into either being hooligans of this hyper-partisan variety, being what he calls hobbits, which are basically unsophisticated uh, people who have no political literacy and not a real understanding of how law, government, and economics works. And then you have uh, what he describes as Vulcans, to use a Star Trek term, these very logical people that are not influenced by, you know, biases or what a political leader of a particular stripe says. Uh, they're just very issues focused. They look at the data. Everything is very logical, rational. And, you know, as maybe in describing that, you're trying to think, well, do I really know anybody that behaves in a purely Vulcan fashion? That's really hard, especially if you're someone like me that's on the Internet and all you see is people yelling at each other on Facebook and in news comment sections and on Twitter. And everybody is the smartest person in the room and knows what the answer is to everything. It's really hard to see anybody that acts in this very reserved, purely logical way. And then what is pure logic? Because people start to throw out dueling statistics and then it becomes um, no longer the layperson's job to actually be able to sniff out the data and see what actually is real and say, well, no, actually, this is a little bit BS. This isn't really uh, what the data is saying because we're not experts on this we're just kind of picking things up and I think in corona times everyone has sort of become uh, an ad hoc epidemiologist trying to translate things they get on the news and say what the government should or shouldn't do and for my money there's just so much noise and so much chatter that I'm not hearing anything coherent and it would be nice if everybody was on this same coherent message, because if there was such a thing, I think generally we'd be able to implement strategies and see what works and what doesn't. But when not everyone is tugging from the same rope, whatever direction that might be, we can't say this works, this doesn't work. It becomes this constant tussle and fight and argument. And then that just really ruins things for everyone. So you know, the argument that Brandon makes is that these sort of very rational, data-driven uh, dispassionate Vulcan-like people really should be the ones that are kind of taking charge, that uh, a bunch of data shows that even though they might be an elite, and I mean, he's a political scientist writing this, so obviously, you know, there's a certain irony that, of course, he's come up with an elite, and he's in the elite, and he would be part of that elite because he studies how governments and systems work. In theory, this elite would know inherently what is best for everyone um so you know if, if all of a sudden we disenfranchised everybody who didn't go to university let's use that as an example obviously in in an american example you're going to cut out huge swaths of uh, women and people of color and you're going to say well that looks a lot like disenfranchisement and that's not necessarily something we want and then his counter argument is you know at this point well in theory and in the data that we've seen, these, these quote-unquote elites don't necessarily act in a selfish 
um, self-interested way in their voting patterns and in their in their beliefs about how government should operate. So it's entirely plausible that you get a system where people lose their their ceremonial vote, their vote that doesn't necessarily cause change or cause change that betters their lives, but the net result being that their their lives are going to be inherently better nevertheless. You know, I don't know how much I believe that. I It remains to be seen. It is a thought experiment. And he, it's always well and good to describe problems with our current society. And I think there are problems with hyper-partisanship that really make uh, dealing with uh, electoral politics to be unpleasant and kind of gross and not something that I'm interested in. But, yeah, I mean, what's this, the alternative? You know, he describes a system known as epistocracy, and in full disclosure, I haven't finished the book, but from the reviews I've read online, you know, it's sort of leaving you wanting because he's being asked to create a solution to the problem that he describes. And sometimes that's an unfair thing to do to someone to say, well, you've come up with this problem, now you have to come up with a solution. Well, sometimes it's not clear what the solution is, even if you can see what the problem is, but... In this situation, I would like to have some idea as to what a government ruled by the wise would look like and why people writ large shouldn't be fearful of it. But if nothing else, I thought it was an interesting critique. It was the idea that uh, giving people the right to vote writ large, even if they don't understand how government works, they don't understand how economics works or law, uh, is, is not only dangerous, but in fact... If you're voting and you really don't understand what's going on, there's there's a moral component. It's it's effectively amoral because your vote could have ramifications on other people, people who know better what uh, what is good for the society as a whole. And so if your ill-informed vote causes harm to other people, I mean, all of a sudden it would be immoral for you and unethical for you to uh, to exercise that franchise. But... I don't really want to wade into that. I just find it, uh, you know, it satiates something intellectually curious for me. Um, I just finished Subprime Attention Crisis by Tim Huang. He's a former AI expert guy, learner, whatever, at Google. He's a lawyer by trade, and now he works in public policy. And it was a really short book. You know, you have these books, especially when you buy them on a Kindle, and it says you're at 70%, and you're thinking, okay, I still have a ways to go. But then you realize the last, like, 30 pages of it are just endnotes and credits and all the publishing details. So, really, you kind of finish the book at the 71% mark. But anyway, it was a, it was a short read, and the long and short of subprime attention crisis was that... Uh, Everywhere we go online, there's a whole bunch of banner ads. They've been around forever. They've gotten more and more sophisticated with algorithms whereby every time you load a website, a computer puts up a banner ad for auction and another computer decides who the winner is and then people bid on it. And then all of these banner ads that you see are real-time auctions for advertising attention space that go in a fraction of a second and it really mirrors uh, the financial markets. It really mirrors something like uh, the futures markets that are used for commodities, which I only know about from trading places. And that in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem. I mean, it has allowed the internet to proliferate as we know it. I mean, we have Facebook and Google to name the, the, the two biggest players in this game where 
you know, I have a Gmail account. I have Google Photos. I have a Facebook account. I post a lot of this to Facebook. I keep in touch with friends on Facebook. I make phone calls to friends on Facebook. I keep in touch with friends on Google and Google Meet, and I have a Google Calendar, and I have a Google Home that didn't really cost that much compared to the services that it provides. And when you think about all of these connected services that you really are paying little or nothing for, uh, it's all backed by advertisements. And what becomes a problem is when you have this really complex, convoluted system with all these computers and robots that are dealing with advertisements, how do you know whether or not online ads work? And I mean, I've thought for years that only idiots got online banner ads. And maybe somebody's going to be offended by that. Well, who cares if you listen? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I play chess online and I see these ads for this realtor here in town. And obviously, he knew him in Ottawa and the location data told him that. And I get this ad for him. I already know like 20 realtors. So, you know, I don't know what Mark DeSalvo is hoping to get out of this, but. You know, every time I'm there, that ad is there. If I click on it, he owes, you know, a fraction of a penny to um, to Google or whatever web marketplace he, he bought it from. But do you get any customers that way? I, professionally, for me personally, the clients that I got who Googled my name or came through the, the Yellow Pages or... I don't have a Yellow Pages ad, actually. But you just people who are, like, cold calling you... By and large, 99% of the time, they're trouble. They're not good clients. They demand too much and, and you know, want you to charge too little. And they just, they're excruciating. And it's because, to a certain extent, I think, when you get referrals from friends, from family, from people in your social network, these are people you've already self-selected to be around, you know? And because of that, because these are people that you've chosen to include in your life, you generally, not always, not on 100% of things, but you generally trust them. You generally think, okay, you know, this is this is somebody that's providing something of value to me. I like them. They're, they're interesting. They're funny. And then on that basis... Um, you know, referrals, people realize that their their friendship capital kind of relies on, on referrals. They're not going to send you garbage referrals time in, time out. So, and if they do, well, then maybe that's going to compromise your friendship down the road. But there's something about a referral where somebody's kind of acting like a reverse osmosis filter to, to kind of sift out the problems and not send you anyone that's not going to be of mutual benefit to the referee and the referor. So there really is some value in there, but I don't think banner ads work. I, I could never see myself paying for a banner ad. I don't know about you. I've never clicked on a banner ad except for those ones where you're trying to download something off a CD part of the web and there's a button that says download and then it's not actually a download button. You just click on it and it's like, ah, surprise, you've got a virus. Please call this guy. And then, you know, we, we've all seen the scammers and the scam baiters and that. So... You know, it does seem like a giant bubble economy that Facebook and Google are really propped up on things that, at least anecdotally, don't seem to be worth much of anything. I can't, I can't for the life of me, think of any, any value that is provided to me as a consumer by seeing banner ads. And people are paying enormous sums of money for it. And 
not necessarily seeing the returns because of all how opaque it is. And if they are seeing returns in their business, how do they know it's as a result of these ads and not just because they're putting out a good product and there's word of mouth? So the prevailing theory is that if, in fact, these ads aren't as powerful and as useful as people think they are, maybe advertisers are going to go back to more traditional mediums like radio, like print, like television. And then if the value of these ads kind of takes a nosedive, well, what happens to these multi-billion upon billion dollar companies like Google and Facebook that have built up their entire market value based on how many ads they can sell. So it's given me a lot to think about, about what happens if Google and Facebook collapse. What happens if there's a market correction? What if we have a bailout for them like we did for the auto companies and we did for the uh, banks after the subprime mortgage crisis? What if we decide that you know, Facebook is too big to fail because no one wants to have a fee-based social media service. No one wants to have a fee-based search engine. We need these services. And then all of a sudden, I think we got, you know, net neutrality used to be a topic that only really tech-obsessed kind of nerds and geeks were, were really paying attention to. And now all of a sudden, I think where these companies are going to hoard their content to try and extract as much money as we can i can see us very easily slipping into the kind of uh of um situation that we saw with cable tv when i was a kid and, and growing up where you get these enormous packages of channels essentially content and you see a very vertical integration of the internet that we don't necessarily see right now so you know instead of paying tech savvy or rogers or bell a certain amount every month or maybe you still do but maybe uh you have to sign up for bell if you want to get access to twitter but then uh, facebook is a rogers exclusive or something like that where all of a sudden uh there are certain content packages where you can only get things on a certain service and then that becomes a real allure for people and it'll it'll price certain people out of the internet and then i think that's a real concern for everybody given that when i was a little kid the internet was supposed to be this sort of utopian world and we're seeing it very much being commercialized and hoarded so that that is an interesting book i it was a very short read so if you're able to get a copy of it i, I think it's worth worth looking at and then the one that i just cracked open last night just to finish all this off it's called bullshit jobs yeah it's by david graber uh, he's a, he's dead now. I think he died very recently. He's an anthropologist, and he wrote this essay for some left-wing magazine about how a lot of people just intrinsically know that their job provides absolutely nothing of value to the world. And, you know, I don't want to look too far inward here. You know, maybe my clients are listening. I I don't want to point fingers at anybody specifically, but. There are people and there are times and there are files in anybody's sort of domain, no matter how much they like their job, where you can't help but wonder, like, am I really contributing anything to society? Is anything that I'm doing really worthwhile? You know, and I've thought about this sort of in a bigger cultural context. I mean, what do we do here in Canada? Like, you know, it feels like everybody I know just kind of sits in front of a computer and types things. And maybe that's just sort of my economic and social stratosphere. That that's where I'm at. Everybody's just typing in keyboards all day doing mind work. But it's like, what do we actually need? Like, we need people to 
build roads and make food and keep us from dying of the plague. And, uh, I don't know, I guess shoes. We probably need shoes. Like, manufacturing is pretty important. But, you know, at a certain point, like, do I need a social media consultant? Do I need a, uh, a jazz musician? Maybe I do need a jazz musician. Maybe I need music to uh, to get me through the day more than I need uh, a litigation lawyer to yell at someone for me. Maybe I need someone to fix the sewer more than I need, you know, someone in sales to sell me something that I don't really actually need or want. And, you know, Graber's point is that uh, there's a whole bunch of jobs that, uh, that are important to very wealthy, very powerful individuals, and those seem to be the jobs that are always in demand, regardless of what people actually want and regardless of what actually quote-unquote helps people and he makes the point that the more helpful that your job actually is as a general rule of thumb and you know the most notable example is a doctor but the more people you help in your job the less likely it is to pay very well at all now i don't know if the data susses that out but you know when you go through the list and think about you know a garbage man a nurse uh someone who works in sewers, um, social workers, you know, people who work in crisis centers. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can definitely, personal support worker, uh, occupational therapist. I mean, there's a lot of different jobs where what you're doing is really helping a whole bunch of people, but it's not especially remunerative. But being a day trader or a CEO or... A venture capitalist probably pays a lot better uh, you know being a management consultant being some guy in business where I don't really necessarily understand what it is that you do is probably going to be very remunerative and you know I've just cracked this one open so I, I can't really tell you what the whole thesis is but I find it very captivating because you know, there is that foreboding sense whenever you're looking around and you're applying at jobs and you're looking at yourself in the mirror. And really, I think especially during the age of COVID with all of us sitting at home and having a lot of free time, I think it's really easy to sit down and uh, have a long, hard think about what it is that you're doing and whether or not it's actually worthwhile or not. So that's really all that I had for this week. I'm actually surprised I got past the half hour mark. I didn't think I had that much in me, but I drank a whole pot of tea this morning, so I'm pretty well hydrated, so there wasn't any choking or coughing, and uh, I really don't have any more things to say all by my lonesome. I am going to see if I can put some nice uh, ambient music underneath in post-production, make it sound real fancy, and get rid of the sound of my furnace. So if you can hear my furnace in the final edition, let me know. I will be sad, but I won't do anything about it. Uh, and then beyond that, I hope you continue to listen, although who cares if you do. And I'll probably be back with a guest next week, unless I'm not. Take care and uh, see you.